Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to this week's Critic podcast. As a total lockdown of the UK looms, we've spoken to other people so you don't have to. This week, Graham Stewart spoke to our US editor, Oliver Wiseman, who reports back from a prepper camp in West Virginia. And the director of the European Research Group, Christopher Howarth, discusses how MPs are carrying on in a ghost parliament. Social distancing, self-isolation. For most of us, a disagreeable and inconvenient novelty. But for self-styled preppers and survivalists, Getting ready to endure the breakdown of the world as we know it is something they're well prepared for. Well, with coronavirus around, should we be too? The Critic's US editor, Ollie Wiseman, ventured deep into the backwoods of West Virginia to a place called Fortitude Ranch, where those who hope to survive man-made or natural disasters hope to sit out the horror. Ollie's written about his experience in the April edition of The Critic. Ollie, Fortitude Ranch, where is it and what is it? Well, in terms of where I went, um, I should say this was a, the, the, the owners of Fortitude Ranch were keen that I kept the address uh, top secret. Um, um, but no, it was uh, in rural West Virginia, a couple of hours from, from Washington, D.C., where, where I live. Um, uh, and there's this, um, there's this kind of compound, this, this ranch where... Um, a man called Steve uh, runs an operation, um, which is a business, and it's a business that um, offers basically residents of Washington uh, a, a a kind of bolt hole um, if you know if some sort of worst case scenario in fact comes to pass. Um, and uh, we're in a worst case scenario, not bad enough for them to all you know escape to Fortitude Ranch just yet, but but certainly closer than they've they've come. Um, since it was set up. Okay, so, so let's say it's the end of the world as we know it, but, but I feel fine. I want to go to West Virginia. I want to sign up. Uh, what, do I, what do I get at uh, Fortitude Ranch? Well, you're, you're, um, you're paying the money as a, as a member already, so you're basically paying an annual fee to, to the ranch to reserve the right to, um, to reserve a sort of bunk, in, a bunk bed in the bunker, if that makes sense. Um, if and when something serious happens. Um, so if you, um, you know, if you decided only after this catastrophic event that you needed this kind of, um, this escape, then I, I'm afraid it would probably be too late. So is this the, the spa resort at the end of the world, or, or is it more a book camp? What's expected of those who pay up to, to join? Right, so, so um, Steve explained to me that there's... Um, he basically sort of sells it as a sort of a life insurance policy that pays out while you're still living rather than after you're dead, which is a interesting way of thinking about it. Um, but when you go, when you get to, to the ranch in one of these um, hypothetical worst case scenarios, um, you are not just a sort of customer uh, who, who, who can, can sit back and relax and have everything sorted for you, but you're a, you're a member of a member of a new community that needs to survive this brave new world. So everyone has to, um, has to be able to fire a gun and uh, has to be willing to do guard duty. There's a there's a lovely gazebo that doubles as a guard tower, um, and everyone also has to sort of muck in with 
farming and cleaning and chopping down wood and general sort of survivalist stuff. Okay, so it, it's not for shirkers, but, but might it be appealing to nutters and extremists? Yeah, no, they have to go and, uh, you know, if they don't know how to use a gun, for example, Steve will, will show them how and they have to sort of go and... Uh, uh, they also uh, Fortitude also claims that any prospective member has to pass a kind of uh, sort of has to pass a test of generally not being sort of too wingnut and um, mad in, in, in terms of their political beliefs um, and so anyone who you know they, they'll gently probe potential members for political opinions and if they uh, seem like they're a bit off the reservation then they, they won't make the cut I'm still not sure what sort of person really wants to survive from behind a stockade Right. Well, so one of the really interesting things and the reason I went there really is, um, you know, the, the prepper or survivalist community in America has a reputation for being uh, kind of mad libertarians, um, kind of gun, gun fanatics, tin-hatted conspiracy theorists. Um, and what they're really keen to emphasize is that actually that their, um, their clientele comes from, from across the spectrum. Uh, politically speaking. And so actually, interestingly, in recent times, there's a real uptick in more sort of liberal, uh, left liberal types um, subscribing. You know, people are worried, for example, about the consequences of maybe, let's say, Donald Trump doesn't accept the results of an election and you get a sort of spiral of, of, of civil discontent after that, or, or that they're convinced that climate change is going to mean um, kind of catastrophic things for, for order, uh, uh, you know, order on a societal and global level um and so and then you have the kind of more conventional prepper style world war three is right around the corner um kind of thing too so it's an interesting interestingly it's much more mainstream and uh less kind of loony than you might expect um and in a way what i try and argue in in in, in the piece in, in this month's issue of the critic is um that really what's going on here is a kind of middle class version of what lots of very smart, very super, very rich um, kind of tech billionaires are doing uh, for themselves. You know, so there's, there's there's sort of Silicon Valley types who have built massive compounds in New Zealand or in Hawaii. Um, and part of the reason for that is not just a holiday home, but also they're, they're convinced that, you know, something could go horribly wrong and they want somewhere to go. And, you know, that scene is sort of that's seen as sort of a, a sort of luxury that they can enjoy, enjoy. But but why shouldn't um, you know a sort of middle class professional in in Washington uh, have the same sort of insurance policy? Sure. Okay. So, so there's this place in the woods. I am wondering how comfortable it is. What would I find if I pitch up? Is it luxurious or or is it actually pretty pretty basic? Well, yeah, the idea is that, it's, is that it can sustain itself indefinitely. So they've got, um, they've got uh, chickens and goats and things on site. And then they also keep some other, they keep cattle on a nearby farm that they would sort of call in in an emergency situation. And, um, and there's a couple of bunkers. There's a couple of houses. Um, if you drove past it, it doesn't actually look especially sort of militarized or anything. They're keen to emphasize that it's not actually at all militarized. Um uh, it just looks like a sort of, you know, kind of West Virginia wood cabin uh, that you might go, you might go for a weekend break and go hiking and uh, hunting or something. It's, it's sort of is that sort of has that sort of feel to it. I'm interested in, in the in the cultural connotations which are behind this. I mean, is this something that that only really appeals to Americans? 
Does it uh, does it reflect the historic reverence for the frontiersmen that Americans have, or, or maybe the, the embattled settlement of Jamestown, a, you know, a small community from which a, a, a new society can be born, or in this case, a new society, an old society can survive. Well, I think if there's something uniquely American about it, it's not. It's really a question of having less trust in um, government than than most. Um, than, than most other other countries, other other comparable countries, and, and I don't think obviously that's more a sort of right wing libertarian thing, but it's actually I think a broader American thing than you would imagine uh, in terms of trust in government, um, and that not least because U.S. government is so sort of madly bureaucratic. Most people's interactions with with that with their government don't leave them feeling especially confident in its ability um, to deal with. A crisis, no, fairly or otherwise. But I think that's the kind of especially American thing about about all of it. Well, it, it seems to me, from what you say, that, that it's really appealing to two different extremes. On the one hand, to the the the, the Greta Fernberg environmentalists who are convinced of a climate emergency, uh, and on the other hand, more to the the rugged right wing individualist individualists who are you know predicting societal collapse. Um, I mean, are these two groups thrown together, cooked up together, going to preserve civilization, or or are they quickly going to be at each other's throats? Well, yeah, no, I actually, I actually asked um, the manager about this, and you know, he's, what, how do you sort of fu- function as a group where you have to get along and agree on things? And essentially, the it's basically run as a sort of dictatorship, I think, in the sense that the manager has absolute authority over everyone else, and. Um, also, they're very keen to emphasize they can always, you know, bung different people of different political persuasions in different different bunkers or different houses so that they um, don't drive each other too mad. So the bit of the world that survives, the, coll- the collapse is more Jonestown than Jamestown. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but is, is, is Fortitude Ranch nevertheless one business that's benefiting from the coronavirus? Yeah, business is booming. Uh, they say in the last month or so, uh, interest is up kind of tenfold. And the, the company that runs this ranch has a couple of other sites in Colorado and um, is looking to open, I think, three or four more this year. They're looking for other investors and they want to sort of um, roll this out across the country. Um, so certainly, and I think coronavirus is, is definitely focused a lot of minds in terms of thinking through kind of disaster scenarios that seemed outlandish uh, not so long ago. But I think, as I, as I tried to say earlier, I think that there's a sort of broader trend here of, um, you know, American society feeling more fractious than it did 20 years ago. Uh, globally, people perceiving big threats like climate change. And so there is a sort of anxiousness out there. Um, that, that predates coronavirus and has only been sort of exacerbated by by, by COVID nineteen. Do, do these guys plan to expand to the UK? Uh, no, as as far as I know, this is a uniquely American thing for the time being. But um, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if um, something similar had, a, had there was a market for something similar in Europe. I mean, I guess the only difficulty is maybe the the kind of arsenal of weaponry that. Uh, Fortitude Ranch have might not might fall foul of um, of, of English uh, of British uh, laws, but other than that, I don't know what's stopping them really. Well, there we have it. If uh, retreating to your living room to escape the virus is a bit of a half measure for you, there's a, a ranch in West Virginia. See you in West Virginia then. 
Well, thanks, Ollie Wiseman. Your report on what it's like to be at Fortitude Ranch is in the April edition of The Critic. Uh, this is me, Graham Stewart, in London, saying wherever you are in the world, uh, please stay as safe as you can. Well, you join us for this special critic podcast in Westminster, a Westminster which is very different to the Palace of Varieties that we we normally know, uh, a Westminster which is in sombre mood and is very much denuded of most of its regular figures. But one of those who has been in and around the Palace of Westminster for about 13, 14 years now is with me today for this podcast. He's uh, Chris Howarth. Very nice to be here. And uh, Chris, you've, you've been uh, working in Parliament, uh, currently head of research for the European Research Group for about 13 years in one capacity or another. You must be seeing a very different uh, Parliament now to anything you've experienced in all these years. Well, I've just come over from um, from Parliament. Um, Portcullis House, which is usually a sort of hub of activity, is fairly much deserted. I, the corridor I work on is likewise. There's um, very very quiet, and there's sort of sort of talk about various people have are in have gone home in isolation. Some MPs have have left. The place feels very different to normal. Um, and what, what, what's the mood amongst politicians? Very sombre, very determined, a bit of gallows humour? Well, very quiet. I think, I think a lot of MPs, this is a this virology and pandemics is not, is not a topic that many MPs know a lot about. So there's a lot of sort of shock trying to come to terms with it. And, um, and um, sort, of, sort of life continues to a, to a degree, there's legislation coming through that needs to be read and scrutinised, but um, it's very quiet. Now, already, I mean, I, the Prime Minister's question time this last week, I, I've never seen anything like it in terms of so few people there, uh, and uh, they're very much spread out amongst each other. Can, can Parliament really function with so few people, uh, so few of its members actually in the chamber or uh, around around the parliamentary estate. Well, it's a very good question. I'm keeping my six foot distance from you at the moment, but I'm in a in a parliament in a parliament chamber, the House of Commons, which is designed to be smaller than the number of number of members. It's impossible to stay six feet apart and have a full chamber. So there will have to be a certain amount of restraint amongst MPs. You saw it at Parliament. Um, at um, Prime Minister's questions, sort of people sitting a bit of a distance away from each other. My particular concern is um, the House of Lords. We have a chamber of a lot of people in their 70s and older. People in their 70s are being advised to stay at home, so the, the role of the House of Lords in scrutinising legislation, it, it will have to be put on hold or go into a, into a very reduced state for the, for the meantime. And of course, we've got some very important legislation coming up now, the, basically emergency legislation, first and foremost, uh, which uh, should go through its stages at, at the beginning of, the, of, of, this, of this coming week. Yes, I've just been having looked at, we have, there's about an inch thick, um, the emergency powers to deal with, deal with the virus. We've also had the trade bill published today. 
and which we'll have to go through before we um, leave the European Union implementation period in December. So there is legislation that needs to go through and will need to be um, scrutinised and, um, and in due course um, presumably voted on. Although so, it can't really be properly scrutinised, can it? Or, or can it? Well, there are two big, two big bits of legislation at the moment. Obviously, the emergency powers legislation, which will have to be um, scrutinised in short order as a trade bill, which will have to go through before December. That the timing of that can be um, can be can be moved. Obviously, Parliament can 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 deal with these situations. We have a summer recess. You can timetable legislation, but if something is absolutely vital, such as the emergency powers legislation. I think the government will be looking to having a sort of consensual approach to it, doing things via the whips offices, the the usual channels, pairing arrangements if it came to a vote, making sure that removing the most contentious elements out of it and allowing things to be discussed openly. I, th- I think this is manageable within within our within our system. But um, the idea of having a packed debate on a contentious piece of legislation at the moment is um, would be highly unwise. After the coming days, uh, and once the emergency legislation is passed, um, what will happen then? I mean, a lot of other unrelated legislation is obviously going to be put in the chiller for for the time being. Is it viable to have a system whereby the parties are given a representative sample of their MPs to, to vote in a very much scaled down Parliament, or should we be looking more creatively at using uh, technology for parliamentarians to to vote and interact remotely? I think with a certain amount of goodwill between the, the major parties, there could be a sort of a self, um, a sort of a rationing of MPs. If the whips officers agree between themselves, a sort of a slim down, slim down debates. Um, with a representative samples of MPs, I think that could work in the in in the short term. I would personally be very wary of setting a precedent using this as a, a reason to start sort of remote voting or electronic voting. I think that would probably be something in the come six months' time we would probably re- probably regret. But I, I think with a certain amount of goodwill, I think these I think it is manageable to scrutinise this legislation and sort of get and get and and get get the the right things on the statute book in the right in the right form. Do you sense that that goodwill is there? I mean, it, it certainly wasn't evident between the parties until really the last couple of days where the, the mood has become uh, a little less hysterical in, in terms of, of the inter-party rivalries, but uh, there's, there's a lot of suspicion of this government from the opposition benches still. I think as long as the government sticks to uh, scientific advice, I think there's a lot of lot of trust placed in the sort of the chief medical officer and the scientists. And as long as it continues on those lines, I think the Labour Party is willing to looks as, look, looks as if it's willing to work on a sort of bipartisan sort of format. Most people realise this would be a very bad subject to to highly politicise. And I think Number Ten now understands that they've got to play play this sort of play this by by the book. On a wider note, I mean, this, until recently, politics was continuing as normal. We suddenly have an, un, an unexpected event like the pandemic. And quite often when this happens, particularly in this case, it brings out people's underlying views on subjects. So um, people who didn't like President Trump didn't sort of immediately didn't like President Trump's travel bans, but the European Union's travel bans and our travel bans were, were fine. People who... Um, People in who who believed in a united Ireland 
think this is a great reason why you should have a united Ireland and people who want to separate Scotland from the United Kingdom have used it for their own purposes. People who want to spend more money on things, obviously not enough money is going to be spent on it. And unions that wanted to nationalise private hospitals, this is, they're arguing to private, to nationalise private hospitals. So um, there's a certain element of Confirming everyone's yes, prejudice. You, you, yes. you have an unexpected event and ev everyone goes to their factory settings. Mm. So um, we have all of these sort of hobby horses, sort of anything, Amer if you don't like America, everything America's done is wrong. Then when, and when, when, when a country you do like comes out with the same measure, it's entirely proportionate and sort of all in line. So the European Union is banning the export of medical equipment. If, if President Trump had done that, I think we would have heard more about it. Yeah, so in essence, although a lot of the talk is about this creating a paradigm shift and people looking at things in new ways, it, in fact, it, it, it just, um, it, that, that isn't really the, the case. They, they just, it just confirms what, what, what they already suspected. Yes, I think a lot of politicians realise they don't know a huge amount about virology and statistics and exactly how this is going to pan out so they've 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 retreated into what they do understand which is their sort of their their sort of core beliefs and their core beliefs are informing their view on something they don't understand hence um, hence you get these people um, using the pandemic to confirm and sort of reinforce what they already thought so if you never wanted to leave the European Union the virus proves why we should have stayed in the European Union or extend the implementation period. If you did want to leave the European Union, this is just a this is just an event that's happening, and maybe the stockpiling we're done in in preparation for it is actually helpful. So I mean, I think everyone everyone in politics they've suddenly they suddenly think they're an expert, but they're actually just bringing to the table what they already believed. And that would suggest that when this crisis passes however long that may be, uh, politics might return to normal, actually, because the fundamental fault lines haven't really shifted. Yeah, so I think, I think for the moment there's a certain amount of sort of goodwill and bipartisanship at a certain level, but um, at some point normal politics will, res will resume and people will go on arguing exactly what they believed beforehand. And whether, whether this in the long term will leave a legacy in our political debate, um, there are some useful things we could learn from it in terms of sort of resilience and managing crisis situations. Whether these these lessons will be learnt, um, well, we, we will find out. Uh, uh, Christopher, you're, you're head of research for the European Research Group. Um, how much longer do you think you'll be staying on the parliamentary estate or whether you'll be uh, uh, confined to uh, a place of greater safety? Well, a deserted parliamentary state is probably not such a dangerous place to be in. If it was, if it was packed, uh, it might might think differently. But um, as long as there's legislation going through and things that need to need need to be looked at, um, um, I'll continue continue looking at them for the moment. I mean, Parliament is continuing to an extent. It's, it sort of feels a bit like the parliamentary recess. Sort of half of the half of the offices are closed and half the the canteens have closed. But. Um, it is still continuing, and as there is, there are there are things that need to need need to be looked at and and done. But a lot of the support staff have gone home. Yes, yeah, some parliamentary offices have um, have sort of have reduced. Some of the table offices and the vote offices have um, have 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 reduced. But um, Parliament is still it's still sitting. It's still it's still open. Mm -hmm. Well, this could be an opportunity for 
parliamentarians to spend more time in their constituencies if that's where their homes are. But uh, I'm not sure their constituents would be too happy to more time in their constituencies, <laughs> but perhaps not more time with their constituents. Well, yes, I think it, I, I think M- MPs who are who part of their job is to meet lots of people. That unfortunately is exactly the makes them rather good sort of vectors for this particular virus. So I'd, I think um, spending more time in their constituencies, but not spending too much time sort of shaking hands and, and meeting people, and sort of a measure of self-restraint. Historically, we've had parliaments given various names, like the Long Parliament, the Rump Parliament, the Cavalier Parliament, and so on. We thought this might be the Brexit Parliament, but it looks like it could be the Ghost Parliament. Yes, I, the the government's reaction to their handling of this of the of the virus will 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 undoubtedly be one of the major markers that they'll be they'll be judged against. Everyone thought it would be the the sort of the the Brexit Parliament, the Parliament where Brexit was finally done. Maybe that maybe in the sweep of history, people will realise that wasn't quite such a big event when when um, when measured up against um, a sort of a global global health scare. Indeed, Harold Macmillan's overly quoted comments can be overly quoted one more time that the one thing he feared was events, dear boy, events. Well, we're certainly in, in the midst of those now. Chris Tower, thank you very much for joining us for this uh, uh, podcast special. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. If you've enjoyed listening to the Critic podcast, why not subscribe? Right now, we're offering three issues for just £5. Go to thecritic.co.uk for details.